This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 154, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Joanne Dewar, CEO of Global Processing Services, GPS, to talk about the behind-the-scenes payments technology revolution. You've all heard about the likes of Revolut and Starling, who are clients of GPS, but did you know that over 100 other fintechs are powered by GPS in the background? Maybe not. It's a bit like in the early days of fintech, where everyone had heard, for example, of TransferWise, but few had heard of Currency Cloud, who, certainly for some period of time, were actually executing most of TransferWise's foreign exchanges. GPS built an in-house system called Apex, a global issuer processing platform, whatever one of those is, which provides some 90-plus APIs to enable easy integration with their clients, issuers, program managers, card manufacturers, and other service providers. Sounds very clever. So, having in the past two episodes talked about the 30,000 feet overview of the whole world post a certain well-known virus, whose name I shan't mention, or rather the government's response to that virus. And in the last episode, a 3,000 feet overview of buy-to-let mortgages and a 30-foot overview of what Landbay are doing there to keep their company glued together and functional in these challenging times. Let's get to a more hardcore topic. B2B back-end fintechs may not be as well-known and as sexy as the app banks and so forth, but it is the likes of GPS and such that enable the higher-profile B2C fintechs that get most of the column inches in the newspapers. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Jan. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. So I've connected my wires in a different way for the listeners, so hopefully listeners are getting an even better experience uh, this time than last time. And I don't know which part of the country you're in, because... Once again, due to this unnamed virus, we're not remotely near to each other. No, I'm I'm sat here in Essex in my home, as um, no doubt all your listeners are and the rest of my company is at the moment. And how many have, have you got in your home? So I've got three children that I'm uh, looking to occupy at the same time as uh, running the business from my house. Actually, it's working quite well for my older two, who are 14 and 13. They're running their lives on Zoom. Um, I think it's an early introduction to... Uh, life in the digital world. Uh, my nine-year-old, however, is uh, slightly harder to keep occupied. Seemingly, he's uh, getting his schoolwork done in about an hour. Yes, well, we, we, we're all talking about the sort of virtualization that's being pushed on us, and it's, uh, it's a kind of, I don't know, a 21st century mentality or a, a tech mentality or something like that, but we forget human beings and, and all this idea about zero-touch societies and masks over your face and that. It, it's in... It's inhuman and, you know, we can do it for a period of time, but it it goes against the grain and I'm frustrated enough as I am, but I'm glad I'm not nine because my frustration would have gone through the roof by now being stuck in and not, not allowed to see my mates. Well, it's, it's it's funny. The the kids have adapted to uh, the whether it's house party or or other uh, you know of the app based communities, and they take to the online group chats as second nature. So um, I think it's more ourselves that have uh, been more you know having to come to terms with these uh, online forms of communication much more. Yes, that's probably right, actually. I mean, I was talking to my father, who's very locked down just before this podcast, and um, in terms of kids adapting to all sorts of crazy worlds, he was reminding me the story that when he was seven years old, 
the Germans, who weren't very friendly at the time, dropped a bomb or two on his house. He said he remembers walking down the road, holding his mother's hand with his mother covered in blood. But he said, as a seven-year-old, that just seemed normal kind of thing, you know. Because <laughs> what do you know different? Whereas if you're the mother covered in blood, walking down the street, having just saved your kid by shoving him under a, under a table, it, it's uh, far less normal. So, yes, maybe we, we are the, uh, we're, the, we're the worst. So whether you're sort of uh, doing it at home or, or doing it in your office, your career led you to becoming the chief executive of GPS. So what happened from when you were nine, skipping over most of the bit in the middle? <laughs> so I started my life in IT consultancy. Uh, I joined the graduate program of Price Waterhouse that was, and I spent ten years very light touch tech, really, but uh, you know, project and and program management in the the IT sense. I kind of fell into GPS in payments. Actually, after my my third child started uh, preschool, started uh, work in implementations, which was onboarding clients. But I've really been responsible for the maturing of the organization, taking it from startup to scale up and uh, doing the, the process re-engineering and the maturing of almost every team in, in the company. And, and as part of that, have taken on more responsibilities, moving on to becoming COO and then deputy CEO. And then uh, in June 2018, our, um, our founders decided to step to one side into non-exec roles. We got private equity investment on board in the form of Dunedin. And um, I became CEO, so that's coming up two years ago now. Oh, interesting. Well, one of one of my uh, tasks, along with reading the news, is uh, <laughs> I finally got round. Now it's about five weeks into lockdown to, to starting my new website on theunlistedboard.com. I'm having usual nightmares with Word, WordPress and wishing the web hadn't hadn't been invented. But one of the things I was thinking there actually is that in terms of the people I've been speaking to about trying to make this a sort of practical proposition for people and all that is uh, just a sort of an A4 guide to the basics if you're a startup for the board, the basics if you're a scale-up for the board, etc, uh, etc. Et because I think there are some principles, uh, you know, and if I made a dozen principles, I'm sure very few people know or doesn't. But of course, one then gets the sort of challenge of when's a startup a startup and when's a scale-up a scale-up and when's a growth company a growth company. So from your perspective, having seen that at GPS, what would you define the startup as being? And, and, and do you see it in terms of numbers of people or amounts of capital or and what's what, what what's the phase change when one day you wake up and you realize it's no longer a startup but it's a scale-up well, it's a good question i'm not sure you can put uh, numbers to it our journey was actually quite unusual because we went straight from founder owned and funded to private equity backed oh wow with so, nothing in the middle no friends and family no a's b's or anything no, exactly. No Series A's, B's, no venture capital at all. And I think the venture capital stages are key to supporting a company in that growing up process, um, you know, in the establishment of the routine and rigour of board and governance. So, you know, we we had quite a, actually a sort of a, a sudden jolt in, in moving straight into the, the PE space. But, but I mean, actually, that was on the back of a whole bunch of positives. So we were... Um, you know, we're bootstrapped as, as an organisation as we, we built our platform, but we had built something that, you know, paid its own way and, you know, quite unusual within the fintech space was was, was profitable. Ah, that's very good and, and, and quite unique. I mean, the, the, the definition I kind of use, just a sort of fag packagey one, which is that when you're a startup, you're trying to find something that works and, and something you can sell and all, all that kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And then after a while, you find, actually, this works quite well. And actually, people want to buy it. Now, if you're a B2B, you don't need that many people to buy it. If you're a B2C, you need more. Um, at which point, sort of, the idea dawns on you that, actually, the next thing we should be do, we should do is do far more of this and maybe even a bit better, at which point that's the scale-up kind of stuff, which is like, oh, I've, I've, I've invented chocolate and, and half a dozen people have bought a chocolate bar. I, I tell you what, why don't, why, don't I, why don't I make 600 chocolate bars, for example? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we coming into or the dawn of GPS was actually a segue from the original business. So our sister business started life as uh, flexi vouchers, and that was selling gift vouchers to shopping centres. That was a business that was founded in 1999. And it was really one of the first fintechs. We had a first gift card program for the Bullring Shopping Centre in Birmingham in 2005. Didn't they not get down at the Bullring? I don't don't know about that, but uh, yeah, might, might well have done. But we, uh, Flexi Vouchers or FlexiCard, used a, a different uh, processor. There were very few options in the market of, of issuer processors. And we'll come on to maybe a bit more about what that is in a moment. And so we originally set up GPS for our own usage. But so it was quite a, an audacious name, Global Processing Services, when it had uh, a single client, <laughs> our sister company. But we always had sort of quite bold ambitions. And one of the things about being uh, an issuer processor is you have to have scale. It has to have, be, have scale to work because there's a, there's a lot of fixed cost maintaining uh, compliance standards and, and having the, the, the various uh, resiliency and, and security measures. And that's, that's exactly what creates the very high barrier in, uh, to entry and also what creates the need for fintechs to use a third party issuer processor as opposed to building their own. Yes. So before we come on to the fintechs using the processor, I mean, just in terms of giving some feel for this. So when you were a startup and when it was quite small, roughly how many staff or or how much capital, whatever number is most helpful for listeners to understand uh, uh, compared to where you are now? I mean, do you have like five staff and you've now got 55 or one million and you've now got a billion? I mean, what are are we talking about in terms of the the scale factor of of growth over the period? It was founded as a company in 2007. It had its first third-party customer in 2013. So um, I also joined later on in 2013. So when I joined, we were we were about 15 people in the UK and then um, a group uh, of developers in, in India that support us. We are now uh, 200, including our, our development teams. So that gives you an idea of the, the growth from a headcount perspective. We've recently opened offices in Singapore and uh, Australia as well and soon to open in Dubai. So we're going through the really exciting phase at the moment of going from one continent to three. Oh, excellent. Well, <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men go astray. And uh, I've been pushing in, in 2020 as the theme of the London FinTech podcast globalising um, and the Lord Mayor was on talking about globalising as well in, in a Brexiting year and how important it is uh, and then sort of uh, aeroplanes got banned or whatever they've been but uh, at least on a sort of tech world you can do it sort of more remotely. So you've now got a substantial business, uh, you've not only increased your staff by over tenfold, you, you've increased your sort of clients roughly as a uh, hundredfold. We'll come back to GPS a little bit later and some of the story there and, and some of the things that you've learnt um, that would be helpful to other firms. Diving into the main course here, in terms, as I say, if you call it, I don't know, less well, less high profile, less sexy, more back-endy, more B2B stuff in general for fintechs, many fintechs have relied on that um, along the lines that 
if you're setting up your business tomorrow, mixing my metaphors, you can get various Lego blocks which do various things and you might as well use them rather than sort of uh, building all the Lego blocks yourselves. But in terms of how hard this whole partnering, outsourcing, what you want to, whatever you want to call it, can be, as a number of uh, fintechs found, which is exactly the same as a number of banks found outsourcing 20, 30 years ago, which is one thing to sort of find a partner and say, oh, they'll do this for us. Uh, but it's another thing to make that work well. Yeah, no, absolutely. The kind of back-end activity that we provide, if someone was to try and establish that from scratch, it takes not only many millions, probably, you know, well over £10 million to, to set up, but also it's a two, three, four year process. And, you know, one of the most important things about fintechs is that rapid response to the opportunities portrayed. And, you know, if if one person doesn't jump on the idea, then it'll be lost to to somebody else. Uh, So that speed of response and and using third parties to help accelerate the ability to bring new uh, products to market is all important. So I mentioned Currency Cloud before, who are a very solid firm, uh, and they did well for TransferWise for some time. Before we get on to the sort of tips of success, there have been, without naming names, there have been uh, a number of fintechs who married in haste and repented at leisure, as it were, i.e. they had a good speed to market, they partnered with a firm that said they would do this, that and the other, they went out there and they were exposed to the market, uh, and then funnily enough they found that actually the service being provided wasn't quite what they'd hoped and it was all turning into a bit of a disaster and it's the front-end piece that gets the sort of immediate reputational damage, certainly as far as the customers are concerned. I mean, sure, within the marketplace, within the sort of fintech community, people get to hear about the back-end much more, but users don't. So where it went wrong, what kind of factors were people not waiting enough? Were they just in too much of a bloody hurry and didn't do enough due diligence or, or what? As, as a generalisation, we're clearly talking about many, many sectors here, not just the payment sector. Yeah, I think the key from our perspective is that we look for a true partnership approach to all of our relationships with all of our customers. We are fully anticipating that it's a long-term relationship. We are not looking to sell our product cheaply in order to uh you know to win a client and you know they you know they say about sort of exactly as you say a quick decision uh for something that such a material relationship can cause uh, a great deal of pain long term what we are looking to do conversely is to have that really positive long term relationship and that's that's exactly where we are today I'll touch wood as I I'll say this but you know we've never actually lost a customer customer to a competitor and uh, you know that's somewhere we very much want to be one of the things that we very much see is what a customer first comes to us with and what they want to be on day one is not necessarily what they will become in year two three four five and so it's important really important for them to recognize not just to find a a partner that can support them for day one but a partner that can support them on their journey as they evolve as an organisation. Absolutely. So the obvious traps are trying to do it too fast, trying to spend too little money and not getting the quality you want. And I'm thinking about buying a car. I mean, let's say, oh my gosh, I want to buy a car this afternoon. Well, actually be a bit tricky as we're locked down. But anyway, put that to one side. If I just try and find a car quite quickly this afternoon, so it's to say a second-hand car, make it even simpler, I'm probably not going to get the same quality as if I spend the next three months looking for uh, second-hand cars. But equally, if I'm prepared to spend five grand rather than 50 grand, I'm not going to get the same. I'm wondering whether there's an extent to which 
in order to outsource or partner something well, it's not kind of like brushing something off. It's not like, I don't know, let's say you're a CEO and you don't have a marketing background. You think, oh, I want a, I want a CMO. We'll get a good one. You find a good one and they go into this marketing thing. Uh, I'm caricaturing it slightly. Uh, it's, yes. not, it's not quite like that. It's more that, for example, let's say London FinTech Podcast gets bored of being stuck at home. So I, I invent London FinTech Podcast you know, credit debit cards or whatever, and, and I knock Revolut out of the out of the park and all that kind of stuff. And I call you in a couple of weeks' time and say, "Oh yeah, can you know you, you you persuaded me? I think you guys do it quite well. Can you do it for me?" I presumably, in order to have a beauty parade of that, I need to understand the market quite well. And you know, I can guess things like, you know, oh, what's your uptime and downtime and fail time or fail numbers, or you know, I can guess a bunch of stats. But is it the question that? You need to understand more than you might imagine about what it is you want done rather than just sort of shoving it across the table to somebody else saying, oh, can you do this, please? Yeah, I think that there's. it's important to think about the, the journey and what, what you may ultimately want to be able to achieve. Uh, to give an analogy, there are many companies who provide what we call a, a one-stop shop. So, you know, they can simplify the, uh, the purchasing process and, and get something live that might be what you want at the outset so say you know you wanted a a bicycle they they are a bicycle shop but then over time you're wanting to add an engine to a bicycle and then you're wanting four wheels and then you're wanting it to be able to uh you know go 5000 miles rather than 50 miles and that bicycle can't do that because you've gone to a bicycle shop whereas you know we can actually provide that fuller capability and we can provide for that long term because what we're interested in is you know what your journey is what what that customer is actually wanting you know wherever that customer is wanting to go long term one of the things that we found was for some people it was it's very very important to be able to explain what it is that you're trying to achieve and get a proof of concept to market or to your investors out there quite quickly in order to be able to demonstrate this is this is what we're trying to um, achieve and we didn't necessarily have the fastest route for that even though we might ultimately have the best route for that so we worked uh, we created a consortium with a number of other partners it was called beyond and what it did was actually created under a single uh, single contract an ability to create a proof of concept or effectively you know whilst it's not a zero cost a try before you buy where we've actually pulled together the best of breed for a number of the the partners that you need across the ecosystem to create the the full fat product but actually in a form that is, you know, off the shelf, ready to go, that you can, uh, you know, personalise and brand to be able to take that to your, your shareholders or investors to be able to say, yeah, this is what we're trying to achieve and, and giving that experience. Yes, that's, that sounds interesting. And it sounds to me very much like almost a consultative, creative sales process that often is involved in making B2B sales successfully, which is very different from the sort of pile them high, sell them cheap when you're trying to get sort of a million um, Customers and in, in, in explain, exactly right, yeah. Ex- explaining that it is actually relevant to what I was mentioning before about me doing the website, and I was asking a, a chap of mine, actually the, the, the chap that does the outro music, um, or did the outro music when he was a musician in Canada, and one of his incarnations, he was head of the government digital service. He's one of these people that does all sorts of very different things. And anyway, I was advising him on his advisory board and, and, and that kind of jazz, and I was as I was on the Skype to him, I was talking to him about the website. Uh, anyway, so he was talking to me, and I'd 
given up two weeks ago messing around with WordPress, it sort of does your head in. I, I choose various relatively simple, relatively quick to get going formats um, for the website, and then that'd be fine. I get along, I get a bit, again. oh, I can't do this, and then I'd be going completely against the grain. It would be a nightmare, so I would give up. So in the end, yeah. I, I sort of I took a deep breath and I bought a template or have something or other yesterday 60 quid and this you can absolutely do everything but of course because you can do everything it's going to take me about sort of the next 20 years to actually understand how to use it with all sort of all software but it does give you the, the potentiality to change direction in the future because i don't know really what i want i mean god if we're locked down at christmas i'll have, I'll have to do online courses or something like that you know or maybe i need a shopping cart or or this that and the other now it sounds trivial but it's the same thing that you see in advanced projects with the agile thing. So, you know, you want to get something up and running quickly. You've got to just choose the simplest WordPress template. You can have something by this afternoon. It won't look good and that's fine. And then you can improve that, etc., etc. But I, I had a chum who did a project for British Gas, very big project, 400 people on the project. And uh, this was at the time agile was quite trendy and getting trendy. And he said, oh, we're doing agile. Oh, we're interesting. How's it going? So, yeah, we, well, release one's fantastic. Client loved it really fast. Uh, great. Release two, uh, release three. He said, but then there was release four. And I said, what happened with release four? He said, we realised we hadn't built the foundations correctly and couldn't do it. You know, so, <sighs> so as you, you know, your phrase journey, um, when you say that, I'm hearing that if I was a client, I need to understand where I'm trying to get to, you know? It's all yes. very well saying, oh, let, let's build a building. I tell you what, let's do the ground floor today and then we'll stick the first one tomorrow. That's fine. But if later you decide you need a 99 floor thing and a swimming pool on, on floor 97... You'll have to knock the whole thing down and start again. So the client needs both some idea about where they're going, but a bit like yes. my website, they need some idea about the uncertainty about actually we may turn left or we may turn right in the future. Who will support us? Who will have the flexibility to that? And I, I suspect that that's for some founders, that's quite a tricky conversation to have in terms of trying to put an old head on young shoulders, as it were. Yeah, exactly. But I think in terms of fundamentals, you know, there's very few programs or fintechs that, that come to us that start with the I only want to run a program in the UK. I mean, everyone's looking to launch something that ultimately is going to go global. And that in itself has huge challenges to find partners that can support you as you, as you want to extend globally. And I think, you know, there is... One of the things that uh, fintechs can rely on a lot more than I think they realise sometimes is there are a pile of uh, experts out there, whether it's from within the partners themselves or, or consultants too, who know how to navigate the complexity. We've seen it all before and we see so many times fintechs getting stuck like rabbits in, in the headlights where you know there are so many parameters available on you know how to sit, set up your chip profile on your card or uh, you know it's like walking into a sweet shop and there's so much choice but what we always say to customers is you know what remember what you came into the shop for you know what is it that you wanted to be your USP and you know let us help you uh, make navigate the complexity you know we can help uh, you know, loads of stuff can be standardised in terms of whether it's, you know, card design or, or, or chip profile or how the, the rules work on the actual uh, programme setup, the limits and things, and, and focus on, you know, what they see is going to make them unique and focus on their brand and their, their marketing, their pricing, and, and we can do the, the heavy lifting on the rest of it. 
Yes, it, it sounds very similar to the, the Avada. I've remembered the name, Avada. Over half a million sold, one of the leading ones in the market. You can basically do anything you like, and it's a kind of WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get editor, where you can edit one of your web pages and change the format, the, the layout, and da 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 rather than using the WordPress's sort of, you know, texty sort of 1990s type technology for editing. And, and there's the same thing there, which is it has infinite flexibility. So some newbie like me comes in and goes, oh my God, infinite flexibility, and you know, before you know it, get a headache. And maybe it's similar to what you're doing, which is that the saving grace for them is that they offer you, here's sort of 40 demos, why don't you start by altering one of those kind of stuff? So I assume that you may well have the same thing, which going back to your sweet shop thing, maybe sweet shops isn't going to work on this analogy, but that I produce my credit card in a couple of weeks' time, uh, and I walk in and, and, and you know, I see all the things you can do. You go, wow, you guys can do everything. Whatever happens, you, you know, you're going to be able to support me. Uh, but, oh, God, that, that's a bit overwhelming. At which point you say, well, Mike, I suggest you start off with one of these type things, you know, have a blue one with a, this sort of chip on and pin on and da 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 or have a green one and this and this or that and that, you know. You're exactly right. Um, we've got a huge range of customers and we've made our, our name in the in the challenger bank space, but we've e- equally got expense products, loyalty, rewards, e-wallets. Uh, we're doing a lot uh, with digital banks. So there's, there's, a, there's a huge variety and there are standard approaches for these things to say, well, if you want to get up and running, here's what we would recommend as a starting point. That can take out a lot of the complexity. And the best way that the fintechs can learn is through getting a product out there and starting to get the feedback. And equally, the faster that they can get to a point that they're getting some revenue in, the more likely that they will have that longer term viability as well. And so just in terms of the issuer services or whatever you, you call it, and these sort of techie payment things that payment people speak to each other in and confuse everyone else <laughs> which you could maybe explain for, for me and the listeners again the listeners will probably remember what it means but i always forget what's issuers and, and all these kind of jazz shall i give you a basic explanation yeah that help? so for each payment transaction there, there's two sides to the transaction there's the the side that like there's two sides to a coin there's a side that represents the card holder and there's the side that represents the merchant. And the merchant side is referred to as the acquiring side of the transaction. And the cardholder side is referred to as the issuing side. So we are an issuer processor, which means we are a third party technology provider to fintechs and issuing banks. We never touch the money, but in many cases we're holding the score. So we're holding the balance in a number sense as opposed to actually holding the money and we are making that split second decision on behalf of the issuing bank when an authorization takes place in order to say is this uh, is this pin number right does the cardholder have the balance are they allowed to make this transaction in this particular merchant this particular transaction type should this be approved or declined i see so so using words that people may recognize like waitrose Monzo, who aren't a client, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick them as an abstract example. Uh, let's say MasterCard. Somebody goes with a Monzo card to Waitrose and it's got MasterCard on the Monzo or whatever it says. Who's who's the issuer and the payer and the bank and, and all that kind of jazz? And, and where does GPS fit in? I know it's not. I know it's not your client, but where does their, their equivalent fit in? Yeah, so so the cardholder, uh, the Monzo cardholder, has tapped on the terminal at, at Waitrose. The authorization message leaves Waitrose, goes to waitress's acquiring uh, processor which will take that transaction onto mastercard mastercard will recognize based on the first six digits of the uh, the 16 digit uh, number on the card that that card belongs to monzo 
And in Monzo's case, they actually do their own processing. So it will go to Monzo to make that decision. But for many or for all of our clients, the Visa or MasterCard would have the knowledge of the the six digit bin number that they need to take that transaction to GPS to make the decision for that client. Okay, so I haven't had a coffee this morning, largely because coffee is keeping me awake for some, for some reason. So that all sounded terribly uh, complicated to me. And I can only imagine that this is because it's sort of grown up over quite a long period of time, centuries, if not millenniums, in terms of how payments work. And then it went a bit global. Quite a little while ago, we had um, someone from Barclay Card talking about the fact that the people who set up Barclay Card in their 60s had actually been into Barclays recently, I don't know, it was the 50th anniversary or, or something like that. And they were just talking about their experience then and how tough it was being Barclay Card and, and coming along and saying, we've got this card that works everywhere. And people go, no, nah, it doesn't really work everywhere and it didn't work everywhere. And, you know, the sort of difficulty they had. So is it so immensely complicated because it's grown up over a long period of time and is somebody about to sort of eliminate all that complexity without killing polar bears like Bitcoin does? I don't think it's going to get a massively more simple very quickly because it, by definition, you need a number of different partners and technologies to be able to bring a program to life. You know, you need to be able to do, for example, the know your customer checks uh, to make sure that the uh, the cardholder is who they who they say they are. You need to be able to do the, the fraud monitoring. And what's key in, in this world of getting new products to launched and having this proliferation of options out there is that to be able to do all of that under a single roof would be an extraordinary investment in time and, and money without knowing that there was any return. So actually using the the specialists for the various uh, requirements and pulling those together to form a programme is both the fastest, most cost efficient, but also the most secure route to market. Because one of the things that, for example, fraudsters play on, and, it, and it's horrible to focus on this, but just to sort of highlight for a moment, they will target the startups because they know they're least likely to have all the various protections in place. And a fraudster doesn't need to have uh, to target the uh, bank account with the most money in it's it's the uh you know the technology that gives them the easiest route in in order to uh to make money um which is which is how they tend to operate so actually using a multitude of specialists is is both cost effective and and the safest route to market yes as many people found who came into fintech without understanding fs sufficiently it's more complex than you might ever imagine a and B, notwithstanding all the criticism, much of which is legitimate, of FS as a whole, it all works immensely well. I mean, I must have made goodness knows how many payments saved my life and, and all my payments uh, uh, worked, which is uh, very hard to get to. Anyway, so we'll talk a little bit more about sort of GPS uh, in a second and where you're going and what you want and that kind of jazz. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope a number of you are in non-lockdown countries and your liberty restored. Um, and the, those of you who aren't get it sooner rather than later. I'd also like to thank my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So, Joanne, we've mentioned GPS once or twice. Is there anything you'd like to mention that we haven't mentioned about GPS and of the uh, countless listeners in, in countless countries uh, who will be listening to this on the show? What 
do you want to sell them and uh, uh, which of them should be contacting you tomorrow to, to buy stuff that you've got and, and, and that to helping you or partnering with you or whatever? Thanks, Mike. So, so yes, I mean, we're, we're becoming increasingly known as the, uh, the technology provider behind uh, Revolut, Starling, uh, Bank, Curve, uh, Pocket and, and a wide number of others. I think it's important to recognise that we don't just support fintechs. We are uh, supporting uh, d- the digital bank propositions for uh, mainstream banks as well, uh, not least RBS, Bo, and, uh, and also e-wallet providers, uh, which are increasingly coming to the fore. And whilst we're based in the UK, we've uh, now got uh, an office in uh, Singapore and in Australia as well. We've got some great opportunities uh, across Asia Pacific, and we are seeking to uh, establish ourselves in the Middle East and North Africa later this year. So lots of growth our end. We've recently launched with Zinja Bank in Australia, and we've got WeLab going live in Hong Kong right now. It's a digital bank there. We're particularly on the uh, lookout for... Uh, issuing banks uh, across uh, Asia Pacific and and MENA. Clearly the the rules of uh, the exist in in Europe in terms of SEPA passporting we're very fortunate uh, in Europe as to how we're able to expand across countries and that uh, the the ecosystem is far more complex in other regions because of that that lack of consolidation and so um, issuing banks is is one of the main needs to be able to launch uh, fintech programs. We've got a large number of fintech programs that are looking for those banking partners. Oh, excellent. Well, I love the story of, of GPS, how it started by being called GPS when it was one man and a dog and, and how it went from there. And you have gone global and notwithstanding all this sort of coughing or, or whatever, it is important that businesses in the UK can grow worldwide as 99% of the world doesn't live in the UK and there's a huge market out there and as you say in things like what you guys are doing you do have to have scale and global infrastructure and all that kind of stuff you know we're no longer that regional that you can do sort of payment processing in Scunthorpe and nowhere other than Scunthorpe. Yeah and you're absolutely uh, right London has led the world for fintech there's no doubt about that uh you know the the uk had the uh, the the co-location of the the technology the the regulatory support uh and the investment at the same time we you know genuinely the rest of the world's been watching on um we've had tremendous support from the department of international trade in looking to create fintech bridges with other countries such as singapore Hong Kong in Australia. And as the regulators in other countries, um, including APRA in Australia and uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore and HKMA, have opened up to digital licences, those countries have been uh, you know, looking to the success stories of the UK. And uh, we're fortunate to be a part of that. And this movement is, is gaining pace and will extend across every country. Excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to hearing more about GPS and I wish everyone success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride 
watching Abby Murray. Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.